0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1521.
1: Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show.
0: Folks, you know you should be eating good quality food that's tailored to your dietary needs and goals. And you can do that with Kettlebell Kitchen. Go to kettlebellkitchen.com and enter code WOODS for $50 off your first two orders for new customers. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to be joined once again by Phil Magnus, who is Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. You can check them out at AIER.org. And his latest project, the guy never stops working, is a collection of writings called The Best of Karl Marx. But what's very, uh, shall we say, subversive about the project is the introduction. That he wrote for it because the introduction just flattens all the selections that follow. It undermines Marxism completely and makes the point, which no doubt we'll get into in this conversation we're about to have, that Marx at the time and since has not actually been taken seriously by economists. Yes, there are journalists out there who think he had some profound insights and Wow, doesn't what he's describing look exactly like what we're living through? Actual economists do not credit Marx very much, if at all. So we'll have plenty to talk about today. Phil, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. The best of Karl Marx. You are one sneaky SOB with a title like that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The, uh, The back cover, though, is not very subtle. The blurbs on the back cover, you want to say something about that?
1: Yeah, you know, we, uh, uh, we were coming up with the, uh, the concept of this book, myself and uh, Ed Strangham, uh We were sitting around one evening talking about ways that we could design the cover of this. And we thought, let's give uh, Marx a truthful assessment of his works by some very distinguished practitioners of the Marxist system. So we have endorsements on the back cover taken from actual published works by uh, Vladimir Lenin. Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Hugo Chavez, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, all these great practitioners of the Marxist system stating directly uh, where their own uh, political philosophies derived from Marx's works.
0: Now, some people may say that's playing dirty pool, but these are the same people who, on the basis of really nothing – would argue that the authoritarian aspects of Pinochet came out of Milton Friedman. They have no (laughs) problem saying that.
1: They'll take the most tangential uh, minor connection between someone in the free market world. So they do the same thing with Pinochet and Milton Friedman. Uh, They attempt to bring Hayek into that same type of critique. Uh, They'll also go after uh, Mises, uh, Ludwig von Mises in particular – … uh, for a passing out of context comment about uh, the austro-fascist regimes in the late 1920s and uh, assume from that that he's he must have uh, drawn inspiration from Hitler uh, even though he spent uh, the better part of the next decade actually fleeing Hitler who was trying to kill him but uh, there's, there's this shady trick that's done by scholars on the left to try to tie anyone in the free market world to a um, um, you know evil and dictatorial regimes yet, the the elephant in the corner of this room is their own engagement with Karl Marx and uh, the socialist regimes, people that not only are saying direct inspiration from Marx, but are claiming in long, explicit speeches, published works, uh, doctrines of their official party, that they are creating a Marxist state. And in each and every time they do so, it it devolves into mass murder and tyranny.
0: Not to mention, of course, what Nancy McLean did to James Buchanan, who's about as benign a figure as you could possibly ask for, and to somehow be able to make him appear sinister. Right. But at the same time, now, I don't know what Nancy McLean's view of Karl Marx is. But I mean, if I had to take a wild guess, it would be that he was basically a well-intentioned old old uh, fellow who may have been misinterpreted. You know, so so he'll get the benefit of the doubt. But James Buchanan will have his whole career distorted, turned upside down, twisted. It, it's uh, It's almost like there's a double standard at work here, Phil. Uh, That absolutely seems to be the case. All right. So let's talk some economics here. First of all, how would you choose the selections? Well, uh, we
1: were trying to focus upon uh, the core of Marxist economic doctrine. You know, he, he's a a very prolific writer, almost a, um, a pamphleteer across of his his entire career. Writes on uh, on dozens of different subjects and claims inspiration today, or or, or a certain disciplines claim inspiration today from him that are uh, across the humanities and social sciences. But we decided in this volume to treat Marx as an economist first and foremost. So focusing on what a Marxist economic system would look like, we framed this specifically as kind of the foil to the Misesian Austrian marginalist uh, system of economic thought. And it was you know, timed in, in conjunction with the release of this rap video where we have Mises and Marx battling each other. But we figured uh, that we needed to provide a comprehensive introduction to Marxian economics, uh, which of course starts with his most uh, famous and popular work – And that is uh, the Communist Manifesto, although it's more of the political pamphleteer argument for his system. But we run through a series of other subsequent doctrines that he wrote, uh, concluding with excerpts from uh, his – probably his densest uh, economic treatise, which is uh, Das Kapital, published in uh, 1867.
0: I have to say I was surprised by some of the quotations that you have in your introduction Mm -hmm. from people like Keynes, for example. His his assessment of Marx and of uh, Das Kapital is very dismissive. I mean I I know Keynes is not a Marxist, but I didn't realize he was quite so contemptuous of Marx. Likewise, Paul Samuelson, a famous American Keynesian, says that in terms of his economic contributions, Keynes was a minor post-Ricardian. I was surprised at that actually.
1: Right, right. It's uh – I think it reflects the obsolescence of Marx in the economic discipline almost uh, immediately off the bat. So, uh, you know, Marx publishes his main economic work in 1867. It's only four years later that the marginalists come in and undermine almost completely the theory of value on which uh, Marxist doctrine is based on. That's the labor theory of value. Uh, marginalism offers subjective valuation as the alternative, and uh, that wins the debate at least by the, uh, the the late 19th century, if not even a little bit earlier than that. So it's almost within Marx's own lifetime, he is economically obsolete. And, and what you see is among economists across the spectrum, so basically anyone to the right of Stalin is rejecting this type of a system. And that includes figures on the progressive left, like Samuelson and Keynes. Uh, it also includes figures that we associate more with the free market tradition. So uh, Mises has an almost identical assessment of uh, Karl Marx's collected works as Paul Samuelson does. Mises calls him a garbled Ricardian, uh, someone who who botched an earlier theory and took it in directions that were basically abandoned from a scientific perspective. Uh, and then you have Samuelson a couple of decades later writing essentially say the same thing. he's a minor post Ricardian. You have uh, John Maynard Keynes offering his assessments, In the 1920s, just as Marxist doctrine is emerging in the Soviet Union as uh, kind of this dominant player of not only their politics but a a major disruptive force in uh, geopolitics… But Keynes is saying that he really cannot understand how uh, an intellectual could read this garbled mess of a, uh, a treatise uh, referring to Das Kapital and find it even remotely convincing. He calls it an obsolete textbook, uh, something that became obsolete uh, almost the moment it was published and likens its followers to uh, devoted uh, religious practitioners who are uh, speaking the gospel rather than scientifically analyzing economic events. So uh, the split – between the Marxists and basically everyone else in the economics uh, profession is almost instantaneous. It's pronounced, but anyone outside of the Marxist realm, whether left or right, uh, is basically in agreement that the core underlying doctrine of the labor theory of value and uh, the mechanism of surplus value he derives from that are obsolete.
0: Now let's try and unpack uh, some of these ideas here to make sense of them for everybody. I'm going to say something – that's very skeletal and just an outline of things. You tell me if you think I'm right, and then let's try and explain what these terms mean. There are some Marxist uh, economists, so to speak, who (laughs) have tried to claim that even without the labor theory of value, on which Marx appears to rely strongly, we can still nevertheless maintain the overall Marxian system, that it's not absolutely reliant on the labor theory of value. But what other people have said is that if there's no labor theory of value, then there's no surplus value to be taken from the worker by the capitalist, and if there is no surplus value, then there's no exploitation, and if there's no exploitation, there's no proletarian revolution, and that's it. So is is that the way you look at it? Uh,
1: that's effectively it. Uh, you know, they, the Marxists love to play word games. They love to invent jargon, and love to obscure arguments in long drawn out passages of uh, basically word manipulation but uh, i think at its core it does reduce down to something that is premised almost entirely upon the acceptance of a labor theory of value as if it were uh, axiomatically true uh if you take that away from it uh, you have no mechanism to uh determine the divide between the actual trading uh market price of a good and what the laborer is paid, which is the mechanism of the Marxist uh, class theory. It's this, uh, this difference between the two, the surplus value, as he calls it. Uh, if you have no means of calculating a surplus value, uh, the entire system tends to fall by the wayside with it.
0: So can you take a minute to explain – we we say marginal revolution. yeah, And yeah. we're talking about there were three economists who more or less simultaneously came out with something like – marginalist theory. I mean, in other words, well, in other words, they, they came up with something that was, if they didn't all express it the same way or have exactly the same approach to it, the, the overall gist of it was was very similar. Uh, this all happened in the early 1870s. What exactly are they saying? And then let's go back and see how does that cause a problem for Marx? Sure, sure. Well,
1: actually, we can start with the, uh, the Marxist basis in the labor theory of value essentially asserts that a good determines its value from the aggregated steps of uh, of work performed in its production. And Marx has a very elaborate taxonomy of what these steps happen to be, but the uh, quick overview version of it asserts that it's the work performed on the good to improve it by the laborer. And uh, supposedly, if you aggregate all these different steps up, you determine the true economic value of the good. And then Marx's theory of surplus value is taking that realized trading price of the good and seeing the difference between that and the wage that's actually paid to the laborer so the difference is what's being claimed by somebody else the capitalist what's being drawn off of the labor's work but used uh, by another person for profit for self enrichment So that's the, the the basis of the marxist theory it all comes down to though this initial calculation of value determined by the steps performed in production Well, the marginalists, and this is uh, three economists, they emerge almost simultaneously. It's William Stanley Jevons in the United Kingdom, uh, Leon Walra in uh, Switzerland, and Carl Menger in uh, Vienna, Austria, uh, all writing around 1871 is normally the starting point. They challenge uh, this classical notion that value could be derived from an aggregation process. One of the main principles that they're saying in in contrast with this is a recognition that uh, value is deeply subjective. Uh, You and I all have different pursuits that we only know to ourselves as individuals we all have uh, different tastes different preferences different desires about what we're willing to consume uh, i may be willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars on a certain type of car that you consider absolutely hideous and would never even uh, pay more than a hundred dollars for just a, out of a difference of taste a difference of preference so uh, these economists are trying to reconcile that with the classical world and what they end up doing is they overturn the earlier uh, theory of, uh, of value that's derived from labor performed or aggregating steps of production into the price of a good and rather they they say you know uh, prices are a uh, a reflection of individual subjective preference operating on the margin so a decision that's made at the moment premised upon uh, what we expect the next unit of consumption to yield to us. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's really a revolutionary way of changing economic thought in uh, a direction that actually now starts to explain some of the mechanisms that they have been developing in the 19th century. So uh, the law of supply and the law of demand, what's the intersection between the two? How do we come to an agreed upon trade? Walra, Menger, and Jevons are offering a solution to that, and is premised in radical, subjective, individual Valuation at the margin. So this completely upends. Only four years after Marx has published uh, *Das Kapital*, uh, the underlying theory, the underlying premise of Marxist doctrine, and it really does take the economics profession by storm over the the course of the next two decades or so. Uh, so much to the point that by uh, 1900, by around the turn of the century, Marx is already regarded in top economics journals as this obsolete theorist of the previous system.
0: I recall also from your introduction, I think it's Mises saying that in his view, there there appears to be no evidence that Marx, who did live until 1883 after all, right, right. ever really seemed to pick up on the fact that this major revolution in thought has occurred and it has some effect on the applicability of his system, let's say.
1: Right, right. He uh, – he is very much in an echo chamber of his own ideas, and although he does continue to work till the end of his life on what are supposed scientific and mathematical proofs of this theory of surplus value, uh, they, they really aren't going anywhere. It, it, it's a, I'd say it's akin to a uh, an astrologer in the post-Copernican world of astronomy continuing to practice astrology and claiming that uh, new discoveries of um, of star movements affecting the moods and horoscopes of the people are are some sort of a scientific uh, continuation of that earlier system of thought, and yet uh, the mainstream of science is regarding this as already obsolete, and not only obsolete, but kind of a a pseudo-religious pseudoscience that's taking place. But Marx uh, never really engages with his contemporaries. Uh, To some degree, you can say that's a process of the dissemination, but we do know that uh, marginalists are among the earlier um, uh, interlocutors of the Marxist system, uh, at least in the immediate aftermath of Marx's death. So he dies in 1883. In 1885, uh, Philip Wicksteed, who's one of Jevons's uh, heirs and um, expositors, does actually engage in a debate in a, a Marxist labor periodical basically making the point that the uh, – what he calls the Jevonsian system or the marginalist system has already rendered this doctrine al- obsolete. But at the same time, you have Marx's heirs and, and continuers, and that includes uh, Frederick Engels. It also includes his daughter and her partner, Edward Aveling. They uh, they continue to develop from Marx's notes new uh, texts that they published through the end of the century – and they're acting as if this uh, this marginal revolution has never occurred, never supplanted or displaced the, uh, uh, the the core theory of the master that they've adhered to and uh, adopted as the, uh, the, the basis of their doctrine.
0: More on Marx in just a minute after this quick message. Folks, I'm always telling you about the little miracles that are all around us in this amazing age we live in. And surely one of them has to be kettlebell kitchen. I have thoroughly enjoyed the huevos rancheros, the braised beef. They have a cranberry chicken with spaghetti squash. All kinds of interesting, enjoyable, and satisfying meals. And it solves a major problem. We all want to eat well. We all have certain dietary requirements or fitness goals. And we'd love to eat in accordance with all these expectations, but we either don't know how to or we just have not got the time. And forget these meal prep services. The prep takes like an hour and a half. And not to mention that Kettlebell Kitchen's meal plans are tailored to your needs. Their team of nutritionists will help you create a sustainable health plan. Sign up for a plan or just order a la carte. No long-term contracts required. Deliver to your door twice a week for optimal freshness. And you've got vegetarian, keto, Whole30, and paleo options available. Feed the champion in you with Kettlebell Kitchen. Go to kettlebellkitchen.com and enter code WOODS for $25 off each of your first two orders for new customers. That's $25 off each of your first two orders at kettlebellkitchen.com, code WOODS. You know, you mentioned Marx as a pamphleteer, a you way. Know, I mean, he, obviously he writes length, a lengthy treatise, but instead of addressing the major thinkers of his day, you look at the writings that he would dash off they're written to refute some nobody that none of us have ever heard of anymore Right? Uh, this i mean he would have been a total disaster on twitter right you know he he couldn't (laughs) let things go you know he's got to answer every nobody out there you know instead of doing something systematic which he finally did i guess later but what a waste of his time half the time you know he's a
1: he's a scribbler of sorts. He's uh, engaged in what we consider blog debates today. Uh, but um, you know he's a pro- prolific writer in one sense, but at the same time that writing tends to be a very low quality. It tends to be uh, half-baked thoughts that are written out uh, on paper and uh, and discarded uh, due to a distraction of the moment. so we we see Marx, as a writer really bursting onto the scene of, uh, of the journalism world in the 1840s, uh, he has one major doctrine that really emerges from that. that's the Communist Manifesto in 1848, but it's already an obsolete uh, text. It's already a very obscure text uh, when the revolts, the revolutions on the continent in 1848 are more or less uh, suppressed and, and pushed aside. So it lingers and falls into almost complete obscurity for the next two decades Uh, Within Marx's lifetime, it's not really the uh, – until the events of the Paris Commune in 1871 that people start paying attention to that again.
0: The one puzzle that he really could not solve was – a major puzzle – was the problem that if his theory is true, then we would expect that industries that rely especially heavily on labor – should have a higher rate of profit because you can exploit that labor, right? That's the whole thing: is you can exploit labor and get the surplus value and profit, right? right. And th- that should be a higher rate of profit than in capital-intensive industries where there isn't as much labor. And yet he knows there's a tendency toward a uniformity in the rate of profit. So he, well, then there it is. I mean, like that, then, then what of what use is your theory if it can't account for this most obvious, glaring contradiction? And it, it's it sort of makes me think. Paraphrasing somebody else, facts have a decidedly anti-Marxist bias to them. Right,
1: <laughs> right, and it, it, it's this goes back to the core of the way Marxist approaches the world, uh, and he calls it scientific, which has really uh, diluted quite a few Marxists in his wake to thinking that uh, you know he was he had discovered some internal laws of the universe that are premised upon group conflict. Uh, So this almost predates any injection of of an economic doctrine into anything in the Marxist system. He's already determined a conflict theory is the mechanism and driver of history, and that driver has an inevitable end that it goes towards. So um, what it ends up being is the actual economic doctrines, surplus value, are backfilled into this narrative he's already sketched out of historical evolution.
0: Let's talk about the present day now. You've done some really, really great – let's say, watchdog work (laughs) writing about what's going on in universities today. Now, today, although you do find the occasional outlier, by and large, I don't believe even now, even with the flourishing of heterodox schools of thought within economics, that economics is really where you find most of the interest in Marxism today. So I think it's not that people today are really that interested in surplus value or the labor theory of value. There must be something else they're getting from Marx.
1: Yes, yes, and that's uh,
0: quite a bit of political inspiration.
1: This is a really tricky thing to measure, and, and, and people have been talking about this for uh, – well, basically since the Cold War. Uh, you know, academia does lend, lead to the uh, – it, it does um, lean to the left of the political center in the United States. That's been the case for basically as long as we've uh, even asked that question. Uh, but academia also has a fairly sizable contingent of Marxist theorists that uh, are either devoted practitioners of doctrinaire Marxism or followers of many of these 20th century progeny and offspring that draw their inspiration from Marxism and and claim to be improvements on it. So uh, most commonly encountered an example of that is what we call critical theory, uh, critical race theory, critical gender and class theory. Uh, So it's a whole branch of the humanities that if it's not directly Marxist itself is drinking from the Marxist wellspring and draws a lot of core doctrines from it. But what we see is that uh, academia – has essentially become a home for the continuation of this doctrine, even though it was more or less abandoned by the political world in the fall of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the collapse of communist regimes at the end of the 20th century. Uh, so to uh, give you an example, some statistics I've attempted to quantify and measure this. Coral Marx, depending on how you look at it, is, is either the, the, uh, the single most commonly assigned or second most commonly assigned author, and the entire philosophical canon on uh, college syllabi today. Uh, The only other person that even comes close to him that he's kind of uh, going back and forth in a contest with is Plato. Uh, So you have the great philosopher of the ancient Greek world and Karl Marx uh, are effectively set aside as the two most frequently encountered uh, thinkers in college classroom education today. Uh, Marx's uh, Communist Manifesto is assigned at uh, nearly twice the rate is Adam Smith's um, Wealth of Nations as other major thinkers in the, uh, the Western canon. Uh, so John Locke, you have figures like Thomas Hobbes, you have figures like John Stuart Mill that we consider classics of political economy. Marx is basically assigned at about twice the rate of any of these other thinkers. Uh, Even even more modern uh, and and popular voices that we recognize, like someone like Martin Luther King Jr. is assigned at about half the rate that Karl Marx is on college syllabi and texts. And we find this from, uh, uh, there's a great little aggregator tool called the Open Syllabus Project, which measures trends in how authors are are assigned in college classrooms. Uh, But as we dig into some of this data and we look a little bit deeper, we find very quickly almost none of it is occurring in economics departments, uh, the main area where Marx himself wrote. And very little of it's occurring in philosophy departments, which might be the second most commonly associated discipline with the core of Marxist doctrine. Rather, where this work gets assigned is almost entirely in the humanities. Uh, so it's prominent in history departments. and uh, Part of that you know, is, is obviously a uh, reflection of communism's role in 20th century history, but it's assigned at a much higher rate than simple discussions of the Cold War. It's assigned almost as a historiographical convention and a major core uh, school of thought. We also find it in sociology. We find it in particular in the humanities and uh, classes like English language literature and uh, modern foreign languages. Draw very heavily on Marx's doctrine. So, uh, one of the stats I ran uh, yesterday more than 10% of classroom assignments of Karl Marx's works in the last uh, decade or so have come from the English department. So, um, you start, you make me uh, start wondering what's going on here. Why are English department uh, scholars in their classroom? Where they're supposed to be talking about Shakespeare or Faulkner or uh, any of these great works of, uh, of, of literature. They're actually teaching the communist manifesto at roughly the same rate as they're teaching uh, the merchant of Venice or Romeo and Juliet. Uh, something weird is going on here, and um, implicit in this, wrapped into it, is what I call an alternative economic epistemology where uh, they've retained this uh, system of political economy based on the labor theory of value and exploitation uh, derived from it. Uh, that is uh, offering commentary on economic events that are far, far outside of even the basic competencies of what someone with a literature PhD should be teaching. And yet that's where it's uh, it's really taken root in the classroom.
0: What would you say to somebody who says that libertarians are overreacting and talking too much about Marx, given that pretty much nobody in American political life Favors abolishing private ownership of the means of production, and that was the central demand and feature of Marx's system. Well,
1: uh, you know, we hear political rhetoric um, at one in the one sense is is admitting that Marx was defeated in the wake of the Cold War, and at the same time, we have a, a rebirth of um, advocacy built around what they're calling democratic socialism or a democratic derivative of a core socialist doctrine that nonetheless presumes many uh, Marxist precepts are true and valid. So uh, I think if you were to ask the average humanities scholar about a theory of value to explain economic exchange – uh, they would have no clue what marginalism e- even is, even though it's been the consensus view of the economics discipline for uh, almost 150 years now. Uh, but if you walked through the intuitive but also vulgarized form of logic uh, behind the labor theory of value, the average humanitarian would uh, basically try to argue and assert that that premise is true. Uh, they try to argue that that's still the main mechanism of of um, economic exchange and from that you hear a rhetoric of exploitation that's almost constantly bantered about in the political sphere Uh, so political approaches today and you know we hear things like aoc and elizabeth warren and bernie sanders basically describing themselves as democratic socialists an attempted modification of this doctrine away from totalitarian socialism also conveniently baked into that as an assertion that uh, previous Marxist regimes were not true socialism. Uh, they involved an aberration or a deviation from a supposed step that was laid out by Marx, and therefore he really can't be uh, legitimately blamed for what Stalin, Mao… Uh, Lenin, all these uh, monstrous um, atrocities of the 20th century actually did under his name. Uh, So there's been a a scholarly and political rehabilitation of the socialist project to try to turn it into a a kinder, gentler version of the same thing that's supposedly truer to Marxist doctrine than what his 20th century aberrations, as they're now cast, were supposedly representing.
0: The book is available, I can see here on Amazon. I was looking for it on AIER.org. I didn't see it right away.
1: Yeah, it should be up on our, our store. Uh, there's a, a little bit of a thing where you have, may have to disable the ad blocker,
0: so uh, – okay. All right.
1: Yeah, available in both.
0: Okay, so I'll link to the the book, uh, The Best of Karl Marx at tomwoods.com slash 1521, our show notes page for today. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about this. I had no idea you were even doing it, that I saw an item on it, and I thought this is such a natural. I've got to get him back on. Absolutely. So thanks a lot. It's a great, important contribution. Thanks again. All right, folks. You remember the old Price is Right back before Drew Carey hosted it? Although I suppose Drew Carey does this too out of respect to Bob Barker, but Bob Barker originated it. At the end of every single episode, he would say, help control the pet population, have your pets spayed or neutered, All right? He had this thing that he said at the end of every episode. Well, I think I would just irritate people if I had something that I said at the end of every episode. Mine would be more along the lines of, if you want to be a self-respecting capitalist in good standing, and you have a website, monetize that thing. Make that thing carry its own weight, all right? Make that thing pay for itself at least. And I've got about half a dozen ways for you to do that, that I do on my own websites. So if you got a site or you're thinking of getting a site, I got a free over-the-shoulder video where I just show you basically what I do on my own websites for a few smackers here and there. I mean, you know, website can, depending on the traffic you get and what you're doing with it, it can add up. You can have a very cheap website, cost you only a few bucks a month to maintain it, But when you're like me, well, it costs a little bit more. You want it to at least pay for itself. How do I do that? Well, I've got a bunch of methods for doing it. So you can get that video for nothing by going to TomWoods.com slash, what else? Monetize. TomWoods.com slash monetize. All right, that's it. See you tomorrow.
1: Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next
0: time.